This week on The Rail Splitter, we're talking about Lincoln's relationships with his generals toward the end of the war. These two great generals are dedicated to a proposition. The excellent to each other. And... Party on, dudes! Welcome to the Rail Splitter, the Abraham Lincoln podcast. We are coming at you live from the land of Lincoln. I am one of your co-hosts, Jeremy. With me is co-host Nick. Hey, what's going on? And, and we got another another right. member. And we are joined with a third Rail Splitter this week. Uh, for the first time, we're very happy to welcome Civil War fangirl herself, Mary. Mary, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you guys? Thank you for having me on the show. Oh, great. Yeah, great to have you. We're doing well. We're uh, We're off of our... Springfield trip that we uh, just had on the last two episodes, so we hope everybody enjoyed that. No weather report tonight. The last three episodes, I was giving a weather update, but it's, we're good. Right, right. So uh, we got a couple different things to talk about. Um, we did want to bring in uh, Mary. Mary's you may know her out there in the Rail Splitter Nation from the Civil War Fangirl blog or her Twitter. Uh, Civil War Fangirl is the name. The handle is Miss underscore Bellatrix. Um, so we're going to start today with a little bit about Mary so you can get to know, uh, the third person in the conversation, uh, today. So, uh, Mary, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe kind of what brought you to being a fan of Lincoln and the Civil War? Okay. Well, I, um, am born and raised in a small Canadian town called Godrich. It's in the province of Ontario. Um, my town was actually visited in 1866 by General Sherman, who, if any of my followers know me well enough on Twitter, they know I have a little bit more than a crush on him. Wow, all right. Um, so I came into being, I guess, a Lincolnite or like a Lincoln enthusiast at the young age of six when my dad bought me the Time Life series of Civil War books. And my grandmother taught me to read at an early age. And I was a huge history geek from a very early age, thanks to my parents and my grandparents. And one night I picked up the book about the assassination of Abraham Lincoln and it took off from there. And just it's been a whole like it started with Lincoln and then it kind of just morphed into the Civil War when in, when I was in my late 20s and early 30s. And but he, Lincoln's always been with me throughout my life. And I the first Lincoln artifact I ever saw was the chair that he was assassinated in, which is kind of morbid for a seven year old to see. <laughs> um, but it was at the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan, which I highly recommend um, to anybody to visit. If you love museums, go there. It is a phenomenal museum and a day is not enough there. I went there twice last year and I still haven't seen it all. Like there was parts that I know I missed. Are Probably you one of those that like reads everything at the museum? Um, I, I tend to do that, but then I also find myself spending a lot of time in the civil rights exhibit, which has stuff about like the civil war. So, I probably spent a little bit more time in there than what I should have. My partner, when he went with me, he saw a little bit more of the museum than I did. He had to come back and get me. He's like, you've spent enough time with the Civil War stuff. We need to go now. So, real quick, I'm what? like the same way. I get like anxiety if I don't read everything. So yeah. luckily, luckily my girlfriend's okay with that. We went somewhere with my brother, though, and they got out in like two hours. 
and we were there for like eight hours and he got really pissed but yeah i i have you know i've got young kids so it's my museum visitorship has changed a little bit over the yeah the last couple years what was the name of that museum again just so our listeners Uh, um, it's called the i i believe now it's called just the henry ford the henry ford Um, it's so i don't want to like totally get off topic but like I'm super interested in the fact that there's a civil rights exhibit in the Henry Ford Museum because mm-hmm. it's not exactly his <laughs> reputation or he's not really known for being the most tolerant person. But it's good that there's a museum in his name that does have that. Yeah. And uh, I'm really interested to know how that chair made its way to to that museum. It's yeah, that's what everybody like. That's one question I will get asked, and it's. I, I think it sat in the basement of Ford's Theater for years, and then the wife of the owner of Ford's Theater offered it to Henry Ford or something. There's some weird convoluted story behind it all, and um, I've often wondered that too. Like, why doesn't Ford's Theater have it? But mm-hmm. it's at it's at the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan, of all places. Yeah, and we're definitely going to have multiple episodes on the fascination. We talked about it a couple weeks ago on the show. Um, the 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 fascination with the assassination and why like the chair and for a while at the Lincoln Museum they had his bed from the Peterson home yeah you know and just you know just to stand there and stare at those things is a unique experience but Mm -hmm. when you take a step back and realize like this (laughs) someone died here you know or was this was a part of a murder uh, yeah it gets a little you know kind of interesting how that fascination happens so I don't expect you to uh you know represent all of Canada or be the representative, yeah. but like what in your, like in your experience, how did your um, fascination with Lincoln and then after that, your fascination with the American civil war, um, how did that, that jive with your education in Canada? Cause I'll admit, I know essentially nothing about Canadian history. Okay. Um, and I'll admit that that's part of my ha. American education. <laughs> I did a little research on Canada's connection to the American Civil War. But, but I'll so, let you go first, Yeah, Mary. so like how, how did that work with, and being in Canada, being a, a Lincoln fan? Well, I we learned n- not really too much about American history um, in elementary school at all. In uh, high school, though, in grade 11, I did take a course that was, it talked a little bit about, went more in depth into American history, but it was just something I did on the side. And I never really, it's bad to say, I have always had more of an interest in U.S. history than the history of my own country. So other than what I learned in school, I have not really gone outside of that. But now I find myself wanting to know more about the connection Canada had in the Civil War because there there obviously was a connection. Like Montreal um, in Quebec was a place where Confederates were known to hide out. John Wilkes Booth was known to go to Montreal um, and a few others from the conspiracy as well. My hometown of Godrich is directly across the lake from Michigan, and there were a few men from this town that fought in the Civil War and from the county that I'm from as well, and plus Sherman visiting my town. So there, there is a bit of a Civil War connection there. But it was, I was always just, it was something I did on the side, and people often ask me, how does a Canadian get into the Civil War? And just, I just stumbled upon it. Because I found a book one night and I loved it. It was so fascinating to me. Yeah, and I think that's where real learning happens is when you're self-motivated. And you yeah. know, I was, you know, I feel very similarly. Where, you know, obviously, I, you know, we as Americans, and, and I learned quite a lot about the Civil War. But I distinctly remember seeing Ken Burns' documentary when I was ten, 
Yeah. And just kind of that lit a fire. And then I, you know, read everything I could get my hands on and mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. And that learning, I think, was much deeper and truer. And it allows me to have more fun with it, obviously, as a hobby, as an adult. So um, I think we kind of share a common thread there. And it's, yes, yeah. And it, it's interesting to hear you kind of talk about it from your perspective. So thank you. Well, having Mary on the show has lit a fire in me yeah. to find out Canada's role in the American <laughs> Civil War. I, I actually uh, bought a book the other day, Blood and Daring, How Canada Fought the American Civil War and Forged a Nation. Oh, I have John. that book, actually. Yeah. And then I, I do want to bring this up. It's been about three shows since I brought his name up. Uh, in that book, he did ba badmouth Miller Fo uh, Fillmore. So yeah. um, I was pretty stoked about that. So even Canadians dislike Miller Fillmore. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know if it's a dislike as much as a – I don't know, whatever. Let's not, let's not belabor the point. It, the fact that we're talking about him, remember, is a compliment to Fillmore, as we stated a few episodes ago. Uh, 40,000 Canadians fought in the Civil War. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you compared that to like certain states, like Illinois maybe even, or like certain states out that were at the time out west, I wonder what, how that number would compare. Because 40,000 is a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sure like Iowa, I don't want to put Iowa on the spot because I don't have figures in front of me, but you know, you get to those lesser populated states at the time, there, you could, I'm sure there's more Canadians in the war than there were any number of states. Yeah. And the majority of those fought on the Union side. Yep. Uh, and then, uh, you know, you had a lot, you already mentioned it, you know, you got the Montreal, uh, John Wilkes Booth connection. Um, there was also some other spirings within Canada um, that would cross over the border um, and even, you know, cause some conflict in Vermont and New York. And kind of one of the premises of the book is that, um, Mary, have you read the book all the way through? I have not yet. Okay. I've just kind of flipped through it. Yeah. Listen to Nick. He's like jumps into teacher mode. Have you read it? And then he qualifies it all the way through. Like, well, I have not <laughs> read it all the way through yet either. Here. We have to verify that you actually did your homework. So, but one of the premises was that basically the Civil War helped, um, you know, kind of forged a path for Canada to get independence. Yep. And um, I'm sure you could speak much more on this than me. But basically, you know, um, you, you had some of these conflicts arising with Britain. And there was, you know, some people within uh, Lincoln's cabinet that were looking to, be, you know, basically war hawks in regards to Canada. Um, and then even afterwards, you had uh, President Grant and a few others who felt that Canada owed America some money. And they were willing to basically, uh, the fear was that America would intervene, go up there and look to annex part of Canada. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah. I thought that was kind of interesting. And Oh Canada was composed. The music was composed, not the lyrics though, but the music. Bye. A Civil War veteran. Yes, that's very true. He was um, a musician from, I think he was from Quebec, and he was in a band that was, they were present at, I think they were even at Antietam. Um, and then the story goes that he came back to Canada, composed the music, and then he left because he didn't like the country or something. <laughs> like it. Oh, Canada. Yeah. <laughs> I'm done with you. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, did so, I get all that right, or did I screw something up there? In my no, brief it sounds rundown? right. It sounds right to me. Uh, okay, so that that's what I did with my day. That's all I have. I see everybody next week. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the <Canadian laughs> and that that's fascinating to me. So I appreciate that. Thank you, Mary and Nick, for enlightening me and my admittedly poor knowledge of any Canadian history. So switching gears a little bit, I wanted to open the show. Um, and Mary, actually, I follow Elizabeth Warren's Twitter, but I saw your retweet first. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I do want to, oh, actually, before we start that, I apologize, let me back up a second. We're in a little bit of a time warp here um, because and this is the first time in my entire life that I'm ahead of schedule on anything. 
This is true. As my boss, he's often very late on stuff. I don't know if I'd say very late. I think a few colleagues would agree with me on that. Okay, okay. <laughs> Point taken. But anyway, so we're we're actually recording this in July, and we're going to post it in August. So uh, Nick and I are, are pleased to be the first Mary to wish you a happy birthday, because I believe this episode is going to post on your birthday. It is, yes. Thank you. So, happy, happy birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Where are we going tonight? We hope we, hope we look into our crystal ball. Uh, you're having a great birthday. Thank you. And uh, enjoying it. Uh, I just opened a yours. beer for your birthday. There you go. Cheers. Thank oh, yeah, you. We're cheersing you. your birthday. So anyway, cheers. in the future, uh, so this tweet was is a little dated by the time this episode goes out there, but we want to make sure we're ahead of the game and able to edit everyone a nice show. That's why we do it ahead of time. So, And part of the um, reason this is happening, because we've been able to get awesome guests like Mary, mm-hmm. um, and which you already know by the time you listen to this show, some of the others that we've had. So, And that's because of the support we're getting online. So thank you, listeners. Right, right. So thank you, and keep tweeting out and all that kind of stuff. And um, So I saw on, on Mary's Twitter feed um, a retweet of Elizabeth Warren, who I have a lot of respect for, um, and she tweeted a picture. Actually, it was a selfie at the Lincoln Memorial today with the caption, I needed to replenish my soul tonight. Uh, and the reason that really resonated with me was because I do that all the time. Like I feel, I'm not a religious person, but I feel like this sense of comfort, the sense of purpose, the sense of affirmation when I go to places like that. And Nick and I were just in Springfield and, and Mary, I saw on your social media that you had been to Washington to the Lincoln yep. Memorial itself not yes. long ago. Am I alone? I mean, is Elizabeth Warren, you know, like when I see that, I feel like, oh, like we have something in common. I think that's just so amazing. No, I saw that. And the reason I retweeted it is because I thought I get it. I get what she's saying, because um, when I was in Washington back in the first week of June with my best friend, we went to the Lincoln Memorial four or five times when we were there. And it's just it brings me a sense of peace and a beautiful place. Um, we went around to the back and actually sat and watched, you know, the traffic come in from like, I guess it would be Arlington, Virginia. And it's just such a peaceful place and calm and all that. So I, I totally got what she was saying. Like when I went there, I hadn't been on vacation in about three years. So by the time I got to DC, I was just ready to be on vacation. And yeah, I got what she was saying. Well, I think you and me felt this way in Springfield. I mean, we talked about it, um, you know, after we did some of our stuff, you know, over a few beers, just how nice it is to go down there, seeing people. I mean, the same thing when I went to the Lincoln Memorial. I mean, a lot of the people are there for the same reason, you know, um, to get perspective on stuff. And that makes you feel good sometimes when you don't feel so great about, you know, where things are headed. Yeah. Yeah. And we've had a rough, well, me personally, and I, we try not to get too political on the show, but, you know, it's been a rough couple months for me personally yeah. with that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. um, her wording, too, replenish my soul. It's not like, oh, I feel nice here or it's comforting or, you know, like I can meditate here, all of which I do and I feel that way. But to say replenish my soul, to me, that's just such a rich statement. And, and I, I feel that way even when, like, just in our, our town of Rockford, Illinois, we have a Lincoln um, Memorial in, in a way that um, is pretty neat. I was just at a Veterans Memorial we have. Um, right by where we teach, um, called the Field of Honor, uh, mm-hmm. things like that. It's you know, it's it's kind of uh, it is replenish your soul. Like I, it's just, I'm just glad I'm not alone. I'm glad others feel that way, and I know everybody's kind of got their own thing. Sometimes it's music, sometimes it's nature, but um, for her to say that, I thought was pretty pretty cool. I'm looking at I the know, picture. Sorry, yeah. go ahead, Mary. 
I was going to say, I know for me, like when I'm having, um, not to get too personal, but you know, I, I do struggle with like anxiety and depression and on days when I'm feeling not so great, I can retreat into reading a biography or a book about Lincoln and it just, I feel better. It just, there's something about it that is soothing to read and reading has always been, you know, my way of retreating and making myself feel better. And just when it's about Lincoln, I find like I come away with, you know, somehow being inspired because I'll read something hopeful or read a quote from him that is just, it's hopeful. Uh, I hear you on that anxiety train there. So, um, I, and I feel the same way. Uh, I'm kind of try to, this, this is why I'm on the show because I'm an idiot. Uh, <laughs> but man, she really like cropped out her husband's head. She could have framed us better. I'm just saying. Okay. But, yeah. Let's, yeah. You know, I did pick Daniel Day-Lewis on that episode. Now I'm going to pick Elizabeth Warner. I'm sorry to be a downer. When I'm replenishing my soul, (laughs) I'm not really concerned about the framing of my selfie. Like, the fact that she took time to share that with us, I think, is enough. So I'll give her a pass on. I'm just saying, I feel bad for Bruce. I feel bad for Bruce. (laughs) (laughs) He was all, his soul, I'm sure, was replenished, too. Um, So... And I, and I kind of want to transition to our conversation about Lincoln's generals and how he worked with them toward the end of the war. You know, when we go to the Lincoln Memorial or other Lincoln sites or read the biography or read the second inaugural or read the Gettysburg Address and we find peace, um, and, I, and we talked about this a couple times over the last few episodes, we're, re- we're revering a wartime president who, you know, who oversaw quite a lot of, you know, the opposite of peace. Um, so it's interesting how we kind of look at that as him, such, such a figure in that way that, that replenishes our souls, but you know, quite a lot of ugly stuff was going on at the time. So, um, we are going to talk about your crush a little bit, Mary, uh, <laughs> uh, general Sherman, um, and Lincoln's relationships with, uh, with him, with Grant, with some other generals toward the end of the war, uh, and how that kind of helped shape um, or maybe would have helped shaped uh, the country moving forward. I got a, a I got time. a couple questions for Mary about Sherman. You mentioned he came to your town. Do you know why he happened to come uh, come up there? Yes, there was um, there's this group you guys might have heard of them too called the Fenians, and they were threatening to invade Canada. They were kind of like a rebel group. I think they were Irish mm-hmm. in origin. I hope I'm correct in that. Um, I think they were up there. To try to like put pressure on Britain to get yep. Ireland its independence. Yeah, yeah, and so there was. It was thought they were going to come across the lake, and Goderich being right across from Michigan, like they, you know, my town feared getting invaded. So Sherman shows up on this gunboat one day just to kind of um, quell our fears. And he gave a speech at a hotel, which is in the downtown area. And I actually walk by the building every day on my way to work. And there is a tree in my town. It's on one of the hiking trails and it's called the Sherman tree because he could see the tree when he came into the Harbor. And he said, all he said was something like, that's a big tree. (laughs) (laughs) So they call it the Sherman tree and there's this sign next to it. Um, but yeah, he he gave a speech just to kind of quell our fears about it. And he, I don't think he spent the night, but then I was talking to one of the local history teachers here a couple years ago and I asked him about it cause he was in where I work one night buying a paper. And I just said to him, you know, I noticed his article he wrote about Sherman in the paper and he said, well, there's another story that Sherman came back here because he liked it so much. And I'm still trying to find 
were like you know evidence of that but mm. apparently he liked my town so much he came back wow when i was doing a little research i found another sherman tree that's like out in california yeah that, that's yeah. you know what i'm talking about yep yeah yep. like the sequoias and then yeah yeah so man it's not the only general sherman tree out there so um taking it back to sherman's relationship with lincoln um, Mary, I'm sure you've done a lot more research into into William, and, and and you call him by his nickname, which is Comp. Comp, short for his yep. middle name, right? To, of Tecumseh. Yep, Tecumseh. Yep. Yeah, we've lost. Like, man, names were so much better back then. Um, so, if you could, you know, what what's the what's the quick version? What 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 was Lincoln and Sherman's relationship like? Well, it started off, I think, a little bit rocky because. Um, at the beginning of the Civil War, John, his brother, I believe, was a senator, and he took um, Sherman to meet Lincoln. And Lincoln casually asked Sherman, because Sherman was had just come up from the South. He had been a basically the head of the Louisiana State Military School that they just established, and he decided, you know, when secession happened, he better get back up north. And he and John and Lincoln all met and Lincoln looked at Sherman and said, how are they getting on down South? And Sherman replied, swimming, swimmingly, they're preparing for war. And Lincoln just said, Oh, I suppose we'll hold our own. And that really ticked Sherman off when he was leaving with his brother, he turned to him and said, you politicians have no idea what's going on. So I don't know that he had that great of an impression of him. And then they had some dealings here and there, but then Sherman had a breakdown in, I believe it was in 1862, and he was basically pulled off duty from the army. And I think his brother John wrote to Lincoln and said, you need to let him back in. And his wife, Ellen, actually went to Lincoln as well and said, please let my husband back in the army. And I read in, um, it was my favorite biography about Sherman is called Fierce Patriot, and it's written by Robert L. O'Connell. And O'Connell says that one of the reasons that Lincoln let Sherman back in the army is because he recognized that Sherman suffered from depression, just like he did, and that he knew that Sherman would get better again, and he let him back in the army. And it seems they had their relationship grew as the war grew as well. And then there's kind of, I think... The part where my favorite part of their relationship is where Sherman sends that telegram on December, I think it's 23rd, 1864. And all it says is like, I beg to present you a Christmas gift of Savannah. And and I'm sure Lincoln was quite happy to receive that, that telegram from him. But I think the relationship started off where Sherman wasn't too sure what to think of him. But then by the end of it, he, he wrote in his memoirs that when he left City Point um, after they had all met there in eight, March of 1865, that he was one of the greatest men he'd ever known. Yeah, Very kind and gentle. You hear a lot about that. Um, I think, I, you know, and I think that, that there's quite a lot that we'll talk about throughout the life of the show about the stigmatization around mental illness, because I think that that mental breakdown, so-called mental breakdown for Sherman, like almost gets like that becomes the story of him. Like, you know, yeah. he went crazy or whatever, when really, um, I think it had a lot more to do with him really realizing what was going on. Yeah. Like he was prescient about, you know, he, he kind of saw what was happening and, um, was labeled a lunatic for it. Obviously yeah. there was some other things that led to that. Um, but do I, we I, know where that gets played up? Is that played up? I, I know. 
is it played up a lot at that time? Is it played up more afterwards? Is that a North thing? Is that a South thing? I, I don't really know off the top of my head. It was played up. There was a newspaper in Cincinnati that had a headline that said Sherman is crazy um, or something like that. And that I think began his hatred of the media because he hated yeah. newspapermen even being near him. Um, and, but it did get really played up in the North. Yeah. And it's, and I, th- I think Grant's alcoholism is a similar kind of phenomenon yeah. where it's, it, it gets like blown up into this, like it almost takes on, that's what their persona was. Um, and, and I don't know, you know, I don't know where that comes from because obviously there's so much more to these figures and they're, they're so dynamic, um, especially the relationship with Lincoln, the relationship with each other. Um, and, and the reason that they stuck around and they were there at the end of the war, obviously because they were effective. Cause we, we know that Lincoln was not afraid or, you know, was not too afraid, I suppose, of firing generals or moving on or trying yeah. to find the right ones. Um, so yeah, like to, to really, and we've talked about this with Lincoln a lot where um, trying to how do how do we look at historic figures and get a, a sense of who these people are or were, um, and I think that you got to look at their life as a whole and looking at Sherman's life as a whole, you know, um, especially even post-war stuff. Like you, you get, I think that you really got to take in everything. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, where did your fascination for Sherman come? Was it because he came to your hometown, you kind of felt you had that connection. Um, is there some other aspect that draws you to Sherman? Um, I guess I got the, I got into him when I started reading more about the Civil War, and I was quite fascinated with him, the march to the sea, and just how he kind of, he he failed at a few things, just like granted before the Civil War, and he was just such a strong general, and he's an interesting human to study as well. Um, so I bought. Um, O'Connell's biography on him and read it and just by the was way, so drawn great, into him. What a title, by the way, Fierce Patriot. I, fierce, he, Sherman was a fierce patriot. Like just what he said when the Civil War began, when he said to his one friend, like, you have no idea what you're doing with going up against the North. You're, and he said, you're going to end up losing. Um, and just to the other thing that drew me to him, and this is one thing that draws me to Lincoln, is just his struggle with and I keep going back to this, but with mental illness as well, how he kind of rose above that. And he was a passionate man. He cared about the men in his army. And like when McPherson, who the anniversary of McPherson's death was last Saturday um, at the Battle of Atlanta, when Sherman found out he had been killed, Sherman was said to have been pacing around with tears rolling down his his face still giving orders for what to do, but at the same time lamenting how horrible it was that McPherson had been, been killed. Yeah. So he's just, he's an interesting figure to me. Yeah. You know, listening to you talk, you know, you know, Grant Lincoln and Sherman, all of them, you know, went through, you know, different failures at different times, Mm -hmm. different emotional struggles. Um, you know, I found a quote when I was looking up for this episode. Kind of, they were. This was talking about Grant Lincoln, but I think you could throw Sherman in this. Both n- normal men first, and then great men afterwards. Yes. And I kind of think that's really defines the three of them. You know, before and after the Civil War. Um, you know, they they were kind of just. I don't know. I don't want to say regular guys, but you know, they weren't out there seeking fame or stuff. I don't know. The no. situation kind of came to them. 
Yeah. And and they and they did what they had to. I mean, relative to giant figures in American history, they were I would argue they are fairly normal or as normal as you could be. Lincoln certainly coming yep. from essentially nothing. Um but I yeah, I think that is a common thread is the resilience in in each of these figures in different mm-hmm. ways, you know? Um one of my favorite lines from Ken Burns documentary about Grant is he was a failure in everything but marriage and war. Yeah. Um, although I think history is starting to look differently at his presidency a little bit. I don't mm-hmm. know if I'd quite label him a failure. Um, but it is that resilience, you know, and it's like, you know, all three of those figures at one point or another were down three to one. Yeah. They ended up winning game seven. Mm-hmm. I bet you thought we were going to let that go, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right. You're an Indians fan, I heard. Oh, yes, I am. Oh, man. That, that was completely unintentional. And trust me, we feel your that pain. That was good. <laughs> yeah. We feel your pain. We feel your pain. And yeah, we gave be... you all our baggage that we We're have for the 108 you. years. We're not going to throw you any shade other than that little comment as, as long as you change your mascot. Um, but no, but anyway, I, I do think that that resilience um, definitely is a common thread. Uh, to those three figures, and I think that's part of what kind of, um, at least it, it definitely endears us to them, but also maybe kind of allowed them to to relate to each other in a way. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, well, Grant, or Sherman was, Sherman said of him and Grant, like, I stood by Grant when he was drunk, and he stood by me when I was crazy. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that's friendship right there. Yeah. Sometimes I get drunk and crazy. <laughs> <laughs> And it's a struggle to stand by him, but we do. We do. That, that, that is true. There's a good story there, but I think we all go through that at some time. <laughs> so um, I want to talk a little bit about the march to the sea, um, both what it was, what it wasn't. I think that um, you know I'm I'm shamelessly when it comes to my political stance a, a pacifist in as many ways as I can be. So it's it's I've definitely spent a lot of time in my Civil War scholarship. Uh, lamenting it in a way or looking at it mm-hmm. as like, man, that's just not, you know, but, but, you know, you kind of get back to the, that's what war, that's what war is like the, yep. um, and, th- and now I'm kind of looking at it as, you know, it, it, it almost certainly brought a quicker end to the war. It did. And yeah. it was really, I think an important transition in warfare where the goal was not to win on the battlefield as much as to destroy the opponent's ability to make war you know we're we're kind of in that weird stage in history where where during the revolution it was almost looked at as a gentleman's pursuit in a way from the other side at least and now you know if they don't have railroads they can't supply their troops they can't make war arguably could have saved lives by doing that kind of thing um i think the revolutionary war it had to be a gentleman's war because you didn't have the technology for anything else like that's to me, it's a civil war. It becomes a defensive war because you got you know the mini ball, the long range rifles, the muzzle. You know, it's no longer muzzle loaders. You got railroads that can get more troops up there. And it took them forever to realize that, but you know that's. I think that's really why it kind of changes almost because it was just so destructive with modern technology that you had to take their ability and their resources away from them. To right. Have fight. Well, I think the logistical piece, like. Now, well, certainly in World War II and, and in modern wars, the logistics of warfare is as or more important than the combat. Um, certainly with, you know, the war in Europe with the Battle of the Bulge and, you know, getting mm-hmm. everything through Normandy into to that theater of war, it was as much about getting equipment through as it was about fighting. Mm-hmm. 
I think I think the March to the Sea was one of the first major campaigns that was not designed to. I mean, obviously Atlanta's the target. Yeah. But taking Atlanta was not nearly as important as eliminating the Confederacy's ability to make war. Yeah, that's and that's. I, I see the march as not just it's not physical not just physical warfare that Sherman is waging, but he is starting to play into the psychology of the Confederacy. He realized once he got to Atlanta, he was in a state to utterly demoralize them and bring them to their knees. And he knew that would bring an end to the war because I read one argument about it that um, basically, like if you're fighting for General Lee and you're up in the North and you have a wife and children back home in the South and they are where Sherman is, you're going to start, that's going to start question you're going to start questioning what you're doing you're going to be worrying about your family and it was like my partner calls it he's sherman started playing the mental game with the south yeah you know warfare is i mean at the end of the day to win war a war you have to defeat the other side's will to continue to fight which is psychological yeah And, and you just look at vietnam the Tet Offensive, from every way you look at it, it's a military victory for America when it's all said and done. But the psychological impact that it had on the own front completely changed that war. Mm-hmm. And then I think in Sherman, more than anybody in the Civil War, seems to understand that. I feel, anyways. Do you feel him as a man, or as a person, I shouldn't say as a man, but as a person, um, understood that? Do you think it was something about his development or do you think it was more of as a military tactician Um, because this is really it's not like they didn't take care of railroad tracks they didn't try to destroy whatever war machine was in the south but this was really an entire campaign designed around it like where where do you think in his life or in his expertise that came from or was it just simply taking advantage of an opportunity or a combination of those i i think it's all a combination of it um I think as a tactician, he knew it would work. And I think as somebody who was extremely passionate about being an American and wanting to bring the country back together, he knew what had to be done. And in his words to, like when Sherman spoke to the mayor of Atlanta before he burned it, he said, war is cruelty and you cannot refine it. But you cannot have peace and a division of our country. When peace does come, you may call on me for anything then will I share the last cracker with you? Wow. That, yeah. 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 So, and, that, and I think that's a big piece of it too, is coming to terms with the fact that it it's a war, right? So yeah. like, to, like to say, you know, and, and Nick and I have had this conversation many times about how, um, how we as a nation treat veterans, how individuals treat veterans and accepting that, what war is and like not to blindly accept everything that happens in it, but to understand what human beings do under extremely stressful situations um, and how, how, how that actually plays out. How do you know, what does that, what does that do to people psychologically? To what degree do we hold people accountable for varying levels of war crimes while still honoring the service that they provide and the protections that they provide. Yeah. It's very, it's a complex thing that I think that 
sometimes gets lost, especially when generations after generations did not really talk about it, and it was kind of glossed over a lot. But but the Sherman, interestingly, you talked about his relationship with the press. The press played a big role in, you know, like you can't you can't impact the psyche of a soldier up in Lee's army in Northern Virginia yep. without the press. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How do you feel, you know, we have Sherman's March, you know, reality versus um, kind of how it's perceived. Do you think it's fairly perceived to how it actually occurred um, and, you know, in current society? I think, you know, the one thing that is funny, when I started really getting into Sherman, my partner said to me, how can you like him so much after what he did? So then I said, this, whoa, this whoa, sounds whoa. like there's a little jealousy creeping through. <laughs> yeah, well, he said he's like, he burned so much stuff. And I said, whoa, whoa, like, no, this is, you know, and there's been a lot of, I think, just stories created from the march, you know, that they just, well, they did destroy everything, but there was these just things that have been proven to probably they're not true. Like, you know, that there was a lot of rape that went on and just a lot of killing that wasn't necessary. And I think the one thing that, you know, from what I've read, Sherman wanted to keep it like he wanted to destroy as much as he could, but he like the people, what he wanted them left alone. Um, you know, like he did burn their land, but I think some of it gets kind of wrapped up in this, I guess it's almost like legend now. And it's sometimes hard to pick it apart as to what actually happened versus what was made up at the time and passed down through generations and generations and generations. Yeah. And I think another important piece of that is if, if you're going to go down that road, okay, let's, let's say we're going to really be critical of behavior to individuals, not to Mm -hmm. say that it's, it's okay, but you have to juxtapose that, I believe, with what the war was about. So if yeah. we're going to say that there was rape, like we must acknowledge that we're fighting a war about slavery, which was probably the widest in history institution that supported, you know, institutionalized, systematized rape yeah. and torture and everything. You know, like so to say, like, well, if you're in a war to fight and end slavery, but along the way, you well, that's not okay, obviously, but no. Um, I think we ignore that piece, not we, but like a a lot of times when we look at history that way, we look at this war as a conflict between two regions of our country as opposed to what we're truly fighting. And to eliminate the South's ability to make war was also the eliminating their ability to hold up those in that institution and those institutions, um, which is obviously a noble fight. Well, and I think a lot of it, I mean, um, you know, there weren't those mass killings that sometimes people associate with the Marsha Sea. Yep. You know, I, I was reading something, you know, a lot of the private homes weren't destroyed. No. There was a study in 1930s that looked back at a lot of the maps, and some of the homes that weren't there anymore, it wasn't because of Sherman. It was just because of fires later on. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then, you know, and I think Gone with the Wind plays a little bit of a role in this, too, you know. Um, with the way they depicted how Atlanta was burnt down. I mean, Atlanta parts of Atlanta were burnt, but not all of Atlanta was burnt down. No. I mean, and then we start thinking about, you know, World War II, which we hold in America, the greatest generation. I mean, I, we literally took out entire cities to stop their effort to weigh war. I mean, way more damage than what Sherman committed. 
Um, so I think sometimes we just got to put stuff in perspective and take a look at it and give it a fair shake, which I don't know if Sherman's March to the Sea necessarily gets all the time. Right, and I don't think so either. And um, it, it's interesting militarily, it's, especially from a logistics standpoint. And I think the most impressive thing is not necessarily – what they did or did not do with the speed with which they did it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. They went like, and he, he wanted soldiers who were physically fit. So he had, he selected some of them himself. He had like, you know, a doctor going through and helping select them. He needed soldiers that were able to make that March and hold up. Well, they, they were bad. They were, yeah. They were. I read some a really good quote. I can't remember where it's from, but they were just an army of Shermans, basically. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> well, yeah. that, and it didn't stop in Georgia either. Then they slugged through all that mud up to the Carolinas. Yeah, like it was nothing. Columbia. So bringing this back to to our hero Abraham Lincoln, um, one other piece that I I was kind of wrestling with a little bit, and I kind of put into our show notes for us to kind of think about. You know, and we've talked about this a couple different times in the show. Um, I, I go to the Malice Tour None. We end every show with the Malice yep. Tour None line. Um, I have it written on my arm. Um, and it's on your arm? Yeah. Right there, man. With Malice Tour None. Oh, yeah. Look yeah. At that. With, you know, so like. Never looked that close. The March to the Sea, kind of for things we were just talking about, doesn't really feel like charity for all. It doesn't feel no, like doesn't. Malice Tour None. Um, so, how do we reconcile Lincoln's role? Not just, I mean, in the March to Sea, but also kind of in a bigger context with that last year of the war, which just, you know, got to, and I think Grant and Sherman were the two best generals for this, realizing that if this is a war of attrition, if, if we go all in, it'll, we'll win and it'll end. Yeah. Realizing what was going to have to happen casualty-wise and cost-wise to do that. So how do, we, how do we justify that as Lincoln enthusiasts? It doesn't feel like charity for all. No. Like to no, what degree it, do you think he endorsed that? Did did he come to terms with it? I think he realized, you know, the war began in eighteen sixty one and here it is, it's eighteen sixty four and it's still going on and there's so much blood being shed. And I think he just got to a point where what needs to be done has to be done. And I mean, I've, as someone who loves Lincoln and studies him, yeah, I've, I've thought about that too. You know, well, there's this with malice towards none, but then there's this guy marching through Georgia wreaking havoc, havoc on it. There's Grant in the wilderness just sending the troops in, you know, over and over again. And Mary Lincoln is referring to Grant as being a butcher. And I think Lincoln just got to a point where it's like, well, whatever needs to be done needs to be done. Like he said to Grant at one point, the particulars of your plan, I neither know or seek to know you are vigilant and self-reliant. So I think he's basically, basically saying, do what you need to do to end this. Yeah. I, and and I, I remember when I was teaching, I would always kind of tell kids because a lot of young learners have this feeling like, like war is some sort of sport where there's a score. So like if you kill more people than the other person, you know, you somehow won. I'm like, oh, no, that's not, it's about territory. And it's about, well, this really almost comes down to that. Like, you know, Grant is really realizing how many more people can they possibly put into yeah. the war effort? Yeah. And if we keep, because we can, the, the North can sustain those casualties. Um, and that's such a macabre way to look at it. But mm -hmm. I mean, really, it almost did come down to the more people that we, that we, that they lose, they, they are not replenishing them. And we are. 
And it's like to take that leap to realize that the resolve of the Confederacy was so strong that that's what it was going to take. But I think uh, Lincoln, Grant, and Sherman were just all realists. They, yeah. they understood that. Mm-hmm. They were all realists. They were all strong enough to do what it had to be done yeah. to do it. They were both, they all three of them were willing to do it. Um, and, and I think Lincoln looked at this is what has to, this is what got to be done to finish it. Yeah. You know, it, it reminds me of when, you know, HBK fought The Undertaker at WrestleMania. <laughs> I mean, he, he kept going at The Undertaker, and Undertaker's like, damn, why are you doing this, HBK? Why are you doing this, Shawn Michaels? And then sure about- enough, what did Undertaker do? He did the cutthroat on his neck and gave him another tombstone and sent that boy off into the sunset. <laughs> I think I got that reference, maybe at least 60% of it. But yeah, I, I think I, I got it. Yeah, okay. I mean, um, who isn't HBK? Isn't no? I was thinking the, the heartbreak, heartbreak kid, Sean Michaels. Yeah, okay, I got gotcha. you. Um, but anyway, I think you yeah, should get you're that right, theme song on your <laughs> iPad, right? That's a good one. I think you're right, though. It was the you know breaking the South's resolve, breaking their will to to fight, and obviously, arguably, that's part of the war that's still going on. Um, that mm-hmm. that is part is part of the struggles we've had as a nation, as a society, for the last two hundred years is. You know, we had we still have not overcome that piece of it. I don't believe um, because it's not. It was not a purely military war, as no wars are. Um, but yeah, so I, I I agree that 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 being a realist and being rational and having the resolve and the resilience that we've talked about earlier kind of draws a line. Mary, in the show notes, you had uh, put some stuff in from Lincoln's second inaugural. Could you talk about that a little bit? I don't want to take credit for coming up with uh, that, but I do think you made a good point about how Lincoln possibly justified the march to the sea in that speech. Well, in his second inaugural, um, the one line is, until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. It almost sounds as if he's justifying what is happening at the end of the war. Like There has been slavery for so long in the country that if we need to pay it back with blood then you know if that's what it takes to end it so it's almost to me that sounded like is this justification for the march the sea and the total war that was waged by sherman and grant um and then he says in you know after that bind up the nation's wounds so okay he realizes the war is over so they're moving forward in reconstruction and from that point forward it is malice towards none with charity for all because I was reading about Lincoln meeting with Grant at City Point and they had the, you know, what has been termed like, there's that famous painting called The Peacemakers. And David Dixon Porter was there. He was an admiral and then Sherman and Grant and Lincoln. And Lincoln said in that meeting, um, according to Porter, I want no one punished, treat them liberally all round, meaning, you know, Jeff Davis and the Confederacy. And it reminded me, and you guys mentioned the movie all the time mm-hmm. <laughs> and now I'm the one to bring up the movie yeah. but that scene in the movie with uh, Grant and Lincoln sitting on the porch and Lincoln says something like I'd be okay if Jeff Davis just turned tail and went to Britain yeah and, yeah. and he you know they caught him obviously but they it was token resistance trying to yeah. prevent him from, from yeah. leaving uh, and I do yeah and I and to me that encapsulates the brilliance of that speech and we'll certainly dedicate an entire episode to it down the road, but to admire, like it, all within a, a 
extreme as far as inaugurations go or inaugural addresses go, it's extremely short. Mm-hmm. But in the space of that short speech, he somehow admonishes the South, raises them up, for, and forgives them all at the same time. Uh, but I, I really liked your point about the every drop of blood drawn with the lash will be paid with another drawn with the sword, basically saying, make no mistake, there, you know, punishment, I don't want to say punishment, but the, the consequence or um, result of 400 years of slavery was this war. This war was the price that we as a nation paid yep. for enslaving human beings for hundreds of years, mm-hmm. and and he was very explicit about that, and then manages to you know then then is able to turn the argument into the malice toward none, and say that was that's what that was that war was our punishment and I believe that, but now looking forward, with firmness in the right, we're gonna bind up the nation's wounds. We're going to treat, yeah. you know, with charity for all. So, you know, it's it's so strong in its language. And I think the first inaugural shares that a little bit. Yeah. It's very strong in its admonition of the South and of slavery, then asked to appeal to the better angels of our, angels of our nature. Yes. And this is very similar to that. No, I, yeah. I, I agree 100% with you. It's like me in a classroom. You know, kid angers me. I make him feel stupid, but then I build him back up at that. You know, I actually don't really do that. So, well, so minor misbehaviors. Eh, Four hundred years of institutionalized. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> just, you know, whatever. Anyway, but yeah, that's. I, and I think that that to me is just really encapsulates his brilliance, not as a speaker, but as a leader. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and and it kind of does take. You you got to break it down. You really got to kind of kind of look at the speech pretty deeply to get to that to to that realization but um he did not pull any punches i believe with with that especially no. when you're talking about you know the imagery of blood being drawn with a lash yeah. and with a sword it's just so powerful well we talked about this too you know we were in springfield with uh uh dr cornelius mm-hmm. did i get that right um just about Lincoln was a master with the pen. I mean, when it came to writing speeches and getting his point across and the word selection he uses, I mean, it's just he's the master at it, one of the masters at it, for sure. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what sees it yeah. there. And I mean, that's basically, you know, part of what we're talking about here. Right. And I bring that, you know, I, I certainly bring that up when I talk to young learners about it, too. Like, find me a word in that speech that's like... That's wasted or... Wasted or, or like not very easy to understand. I mean, art maybe malice. I mean, obviously charity means something differently then than it does now. He's not talking about donating money, but um, it's very clear and precise. So how would you compare that? Because you've got Grant and Sherman kind of doing, doing what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, you know, we talked about Lincoln crafting the argument. What have you, from your reading of Sherman, how was, how was his communication um, because he kind of ended up in a more of a political role than needed was he more of like the kind of general of the armies. Am I correct in that? Or was that Grant? Grant was the commander and then Sherman was below him, but Sherman ended up in his role after. Uh, yeah. That's Civil what I was talking War. about. Okay. Yeah. He, um, like after the civil war, like, I think he wanted to, keep things like what Lincoln wanted, you know, like treat them liberally and all that. And he had that 
you know, treaty, treaty with uh, General Johnston, which he was, Stanton did not like that, what he did with Johnston. Um, and I know when he was in the role that Grant had once held when Grant was president, that he and Grant just clashed over that. And I think it was because of some of Grant's appoint political appointments that he made that Sherman didn't agree with them. Sherman had suggested people and then Grant didn't want it, but that's, I don't know how Sherman would have really, like, I think he, it's hard for me to say on that. I don't know as much about Sherman after the war as I do in the war. It's kind of interesting that you bring that up yeah. about the appointments because, like, yeah. in a way, he was kind of a political appointment too, being the yes, brother exactly, of the senator, yeah. you know, like, and Lincoln, and, and I find that interesting about Lincoln, um, and I actually saw an entire speech. We used to have a Civil War symposium actually right by my house at our local museum, and uh, we saw an entire speech on Lincoln's political appointments, and the whole premise of the speech was he, he appointed a lot of really inept military leaders, mm-hmm. but it was a stroke of genius because the support for the war and the support for the huge losses was so delicate and to make sure that he was had local support and support in Congress and, you know, was, you know, when you have things like the draft and you have, you know, you're trying to fund and finance a war, these things are extremely important and often overlooked when you look at Lincoln's life. And the whole argument of that speech was the reason, one of the main reasons he had such support was he appointed political cronies of these, of influential yeah. people, two major positions in the military, sometimes as high as general. Um, and Sherman arguably, I mean, obviously he had his merits. He was certainly a military person, yeah. um, not a purely political appointment. But, you know, it's, we overlooked the ones that worked out a lot, I think, and we don't really look at them as a political appointment. But no. um, Senator Sherman, I believe from Ohio, right, very important yep. person, mm-hmm. important person to make sure that you have in your corner. So there is that element where... Uh, he himself was a bit of a political appointment, certainly at his reinstatement. Yeah. Excuse me. So, um, sorry, I had to... You all right there? Yeah, I had to step away from the mic. I, I didn't know what was happening there. <laughs> um, so, um, anything else on Grant or Sherman for, for this episode? We're going to transition a little bit to the next thing. Uh, Mary, you got any unique Sherman tidbits? What's the most mm-hmm. unique or fascinating thing about Sherman? In your opinion, the unique thing about him, um, well, when he was a kid, he tried. He okay, so he hated having red hair. So when he was a kid, he tried to dye it, and he <laughs> dyed it green. Wow! <laughs> wow, that's interesting. I like that. That's and good. He, green. he admitted that he did not graduate higher in his class at West Point because he lost demerit points because he was goofing off or he didn't have his uniform perfect, and that goes back to when he that comes forward when he was a general. And he was always, you know, he would wear this one hat that wasn't like military and he wasn't flamboyant, uh, you know, not in the way that I think I would think McClellan was flamboyant. Mm-hmm. That's, um, that's a very common thread between the three people we've been talking about. Yes. All which three I of also, not flamboyant. Yeah. All three of them were uh, understated, shall we, shall we say, in their dress, which I, I think is a positive attribute of all three uh, i agree 100 percent. and i don't think anything was wrong with any other uh attires no no uh, coming from somebody who dresses like a hillbilly yeah 
<laughs> not to offend any any hillbillies out there, but um, no, that's yeah, I, I agree that kind of their you know they were they were uh, they were more about the task at hand than the pomp yep. and circumstance around it, um, which I think was a lar- to a large degree why a lot of the earlier generals and really the earlier style of war um, was unsuccessful. I think that that kind of exposed itself as um, you know the the whole gentlemanship around war was an, mm. was an old idea you know there's i mean there's some cavalry officers certainly for the confederacy jeb stewart comes to mind as oh yeah um <laughs> successful people that were all about the the flair the pizzazz if you will mm-hmm. yeah um but but i think by and large i think that was kind of not not that the not that the uniforms anything to do with performance but i think that what it indicated about their personality was um you know the the brass on my uniform is not nearly as important as the fact that we're being effective and doing what we need yeah. to do. And, yeah. You know those kinds of things. So. Yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm envious of you. You get to work in a bookstore every day, and you surround yeah. yourself with all of this this stuff. So, um, uh, did you want to put a quick plug in for your? You know, you've you've spoken well about your hometown, which I always find endearing, because oh. um, I have some civic pride as well for our little Thank town you. here in Illinois. Uh, you have a local store that you want to plug or not? I, I do. Actually, the store I work in is, um, it was opened by my grandfather in 1956. Wow. That's so awesome. it's been open for 61 years now and my uncle now owns it. It's called Finchers. Okay. So if you are ever in Godrich, visit Finchers and I'm there quite a bit. And my town is quite beautiful to visit. We have, there's beautiful beaches. There's a wonderful museum to see as well. Um, can you give us actually, just a general idea where is where is your town relative to? Because I know you're not you're very you're actually not that far further north than we are, but um, what kind of ballpark are you in? So I am about ninety minutes north of Port Huron, Michigan. Okay, I'm about two hours and forty five minutes from Detroit, and I'm right on the shores of Lake Huron. Wow. It sounds beautiful. Yeah, I, I agree. It's very nice town. Very nice town. Awesome. So if you're uh, in the neighborhood, check that store out. Check the museum out. Check the beaches out. And of course, you cannot forget Sherman's Tree. No, yes. you can't. Yep. No, you can't. <laughs> yeah, and actually, it's funny. The museum has a Sherman tank. Really? Outside of it, yes. Yeah. All right. There yeah. you go. Well, Nick and I were down by the Illinois Military Museum last week. And I was excited because I thought we were going to send a Sherman tank and I was going to tag you on a post, and it was a patent tank. Oh. Son of a bitch. Yeah, it was close. Damn. It was close, but um, but that was kind of neat. I did tweet out some pictures from the Illinois Military yes, that's... Museum, which is pretty cool. So in your town, you got other people where, where you can chit-chat civil, American Civil War talk with? No, not at all, actually. Um like the one thing that Lincoln and the civil war and being on Twitter has brought me is wonderful friends. And I've actually met three of my very best friends in the whole world on Twitter. Through like a civil war kind of community type feel. Yeah. Just, just meeting randomly on Twitter and we're all into Lincoln and the civil war. And, um, so I talked to them quite a bit. Um, I actually went on a road trip with one of them in June. Oh, awesome. We went to Gettysburg and to DC together. And another one I'm talking about, we're talking about getting together and maybe going to Chicago and seeing some of the museums there and all that. So 
Yeah, there's my partner, he will talk to me about it. He's learned a little bit through me. So <laughs> he will talk to me about it if I need to. But there's yeah. not too many Canadians that are into it around here. Yeah, no. And definitely if you're looking for travel tips for Chicago, and we actually kind of have a plan to do like a, a Chicago episode where we're going to try to hit all the cool. sites that we can. And because um, we're about 90 miles from. From Chicago, so we should do a Chicago meetup with all our listeners. Yeah, all yeah. If, if the United Center is available, we can work <laughs> for all of Rail Splitter Nation. So, all right. Um, anything else you wanted to add, Mary? We wanted to thank you again for coming on the show and helping us out. We hope to to do this again and to have you as a as a regular contributor. And and I just kind of want to say to to the listeners and to kind of I say Rail Splitter Nation. I kind of like like the sound of that. Um, the reason that, that we were kind of drawn to you, Mary, was that you kind of have the similar approach to us where it's not about, um, you know, your, your blog posts and your tweets are not like, let me just tell you how much I know about this that you probably mm-hmm. don't know as much as this is something that I think others like me will find interesting and you can kind of talk about it and it, it's not a You're a good Twitter contest. follower. Uh, a follow, I guess, is what I would yeah, say. So I always get so nervous when it comes to tweet that I barely do it ever. Oh. You do a nice job, yeah, though, man. Yeah, I agree. So, and you know, you've got a nice following, and and Thank I you. and I've enjoyed your, I've enjoyed following you, and I'm and I'm appreciative that we're kind of, you know, fairly new to the social media Civil War Lincoln community, but it's been so rewarding, and we're hoping mm-hmm. to continue to build our audience, um, and to kind of have some more conversations where it's just chatting about history and having fun with it and nobody's pretending to be an expert on anything as much as a learner about everything so yeah i think we all have a lot to learn from each other and i just want to thank you guys for uh, letting me come on the show and i would definitely come back again to talk about whatever like the lincoln movie or just whatever else it's yeah, yeah. Been... and you've shared some show ideas with us that we, we really like a lot too so mm. um and if you're new to the show listening um we, we're not a chronological show um so just because we've talked a lot about the end of the war doesn't mean you've caught us at the tail end this of is the it podcast. this is it for the podcast yeah, yeah <laughs> we made it to 1865 peace no um so we kind of bounce around a lot there's a lot of different ideas sometimes we're we did we had a wrestling uh, an episode about wrestling we had an episode about a pretty intense speech. So we try to bump, b- bounce around quite a bit. So try to do something new all the time. So um, we'll definitely um, do that. And hopefully we'll have Mary along with us for a few shows, you know, here and there. And um, as we kind of move along. So um, once again, Mary, thank you. Um, as your first time as a rail splitter, we did ask you to provide this week in Lincoln, which is our weekly feature. So why don't you go ahead and let us know what you bring for us this week? It is my phone case, which I um, my partner gave me as a birthday gift about two years ago. Um, it's called, I think it's called Put a Five on it. It is from Threadless.com, and it is Abraham Lincoln. He's got tattoos all over him, and he's clearly, I think, about to go into the wrestling ring. Yeah. Um, but it is, <laughs> like, it, it gets a, it's a conversation piece. When I set it on a table, and people see it, they're like, is that Abraham Lincoln? It's like, yes, it is. And they're like, why are you into like they instantly say so you like him and it's i just go from there with it yeah and i have seen it you, you sent me a picture of it it is yeah it is amazing i really it's, yeah thank it, you it's exactly kind of my thoughts on lincoln you know sometimes i did have a lincoln phone case as well it was about a hundredth as cool as yours because it was like literally the five dollar bill portrait um i got it on etsy and it 
and it broke not long after I had oh. it. So I'm glad yours has made it for two years. I'm, it I'm it has. It was yeah. a gift. You kind of have a cool backstory already to it. So yeah. Uh, once when this episode airs, we'll definitely throw that out on social media so everybody can get a look at it. And I'm interested to hear uh, the comments because it's a it's a pretty pretty epic phone case. So um, any parting thoughts, Mary Nick? You enjoy yourself, Mary. I did very much. I would love to come back sometime. This was awesome, and it's great to be able to connect with uh, other people who are into Lincoln as much as I am. And I love what you guys are doing with trying to bring the Lincoln community and even the Civil War community together. I think it's a wonderful idea because we have so much to learn from each other and just share our passion. I agree. I, I agree as well. That's, that is a perfect encapsulation of what our goals are so the fact that you said that means a lot to, to me personally and i think to both of us yep. so um, and i do For think sure. that there is something to be said that the lincoln community and the civil war community are really one and the same because uh, mm-hmm. you can't you certainly can't separate them so no. we're so proud and happy to be part of it and the sherman community of course yes. obviously the sherman, Josh sherman. <laughs> yeah that's right your boy comp so um, mary thank you again we look forward to having you on uh in the future Uh, We will be back next week with a new episode. So until then, continue to walk the world with malice toward none and with charity for all, and we will see you soon.